Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during the pandemic, and like many things that started during the pandemic, we'll have a life well after the pandemic. We've had a lot of fun with these. We started in about late May, and we've had a lot of great speakers, another one coming up today. What they are are interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during the SALT Talk series is replicate the experience that we provided our global SALT conference series uh, that we have annually in Las Vegas. And we've also had several international conferences as well for those of you who have attended. Uh, and that's to really provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Michael Schmidt to SALT Talks. Uh, Michael is the Washington correspondent for the New York Times who covers uh, national security and federal investigations. And his remit has uh, grown a little bit in the last four years in terms of what he covers, uh, given the volume of investigations that we've seen in this administration. Uh, he was part of two teams that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018, one for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues and the other for his coverage of President Donald Trump and his campaign's ties to Russia. Uh, for the past year, Michael's coverage has focused on the Mueller investigation into Mr. Trump's campaign and whether the president obstructed justice as part of um, everything that went into that investigation. From 2012 to 2016, Michael covered the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Pentagon. Uh, he spent 2011 in Iraq chronicling the last year of the American occupation. From 2007 to 2010, he covered doping and off-the-field issues for the sports section of the Times. He started his career at the Times in 2005 as a clerk on the Foreign Desk and has obviously earned a lot of uh, trust internally there, has taken on a lot of the big projects over the years uh, at the Times. He's broken several high-profile stories over the years. The first was to reveal uh, that Secretary Hillary Clinton exclusively, exclusively relied on her personal email account uh, when she was Secretary of State. Uh, in sports, he broke the stories that Sammy Sosa, uh, David Ortiz, and Manny Ramirez had tested positive uh, for performance-enhancing drugs, and he wrote about the treatment of young baseball players in the Dominican Republic who were exploited by American investors and agents. In 2017, he co-authored the stories that outlined how the former Fox News host, uh, Bill O'Reilly, paid off a series of women who made sexual harassment allegations against him. Uh, for that coverage, he won the Livingston Award for National Reporting, which recognizes the best work of journalists under the age of 35. Michael also has a recent book out, which we're going to talk a lot about today, called Donald Trump versus the United States. Uh, and and uh, conducting today's interview is going to be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Michael, thank you. Well, thank you, uh, John. Thank you. And Michael, I got to hold up your book. See that? So not only am I self-promotional, Michael, but I'm also promoting of others. See that? Do <laughs> on to others as you would like to do to yourself. Look at this, right? Okay, so this book is amazing. I told Phil Rucker, I'm sorry. This goes to the top of the stack on the Trump books, and there's been a proliferation of them. But I thought you had a fascinating understanding of the personalities as well as the facts of what was going on. And so I would like to get right into it, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I'd like you to tell us uh, about the work that you did on this book in terms of the research, the interviews. 
you obviously certainly don't want you to give up your sources, but I want you to give us a little bit of a story of how you got a book like this, which to me reads like an internal transcript of the West Wing. So I think the biggest challenge that I had was telling a book that would be distinctive. We all had a sense that this was a chaotic time, really, you know, crazy shit went on, unprecedented shit. The president was acting very irregularly, unprecedented. But how do you tell a story that will stick? So what I tried to do was to concentrate on the human story of this. What is it like to be one of these people around the president trying to contain a president? What's that human experience like? We can sit here and we can go through the paces of all of the stuff that's gone on. You wanna start with the Muslim ban and go through the tank meeting and all that stuff. But what does it really feel like when you're at the top of the government and there's no one else to call? There's no one else to help you. And it's just you standing up to a president. We know what it's like for a president to use power and for the people around them to help them do that. But I don't think we've seen as much in history people trying to stop a president. Like, what, what is that like? What does that chaos look like? What does that feel like to be one of those people? So that is what I tried to concentrate on and try to tell that story. Well, and, and obviously you do a great job of that. When I finished the book last night, my reaction was, man, President Trump's next job could be replacing King George III in the musical Hamilton. I mean, you said crazy shit, but he's batshit crazy. And so tell us about that. Tell us about people like John Kelly, Don McGahn, uh, Reince Priebus, others that recognize, okay, there's something seriously wrong here. So what are we gonna do here to try to corral it if it's even possible? It, it, it's like, the problem is, is that if you behave the way that the president did, at a company or at a school or at wherever, you would be ostracized, um, pushed off to the side, and probably- well, John Dorsey does behave like that at Skybridge, but we're fairly tolerant, <laughs> but mo mo most people would be fired immediately. But go ahead, Michael, I'm sorry. We all know who the I, crazy one at Skybridge is, Michael. I, I, sorry I had to for give that shot you. here. <laughs> the, Put yourself back on mute, Dorsey. The, um, the, 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 so the thing is, is that, the fact that the, this may sound a little simplistic, but the fact that the president was the president is what caused this problem because no one could, you couldn't just ostracize him. I mean, you could try, you know, John Kelly could try and sort of box him in. You know, the people around the president could tell him that he certainly couldn't do things. But at the end of the day, he was the president. And there was only so much that you could do to try and stop someone like that. So, so we know what it's like to work at a company where someone may be, you know, acting abnormally and needs to be sort of contained. But what, what happens when the person at the top is doing that? And what happens when the, the apparatus that is supposed to be there to serve as a check on the presidency, when that's not functioning, what happens? What happens when that power is sort of loosely running around and you have someone who is not um, moored to norms? They're moored to, it's unclear what they're moored towards. So when you take those factors and you throw them together, what is that like? Because I don't think we've seen that a lot. So I said to myself, I said, in terms of how 
the power has unfolded here and how this is all structured. This is really unique. And I need to do more here than just capture sort of the paces of the story, you know, the, you know, they wanted to do tax cuts and they wanted to do it. Like, we need to go bigger than that. We need to go inside the bodies of these people around the president to see what this experience was like. If you, you know, I mean, you, you make the case in the book, as I'm just curious your reaction. I mean, he's damaging the institutions of our democracy because he doesn't want to follow the norms or the procedures. And, you know, John Kennedy once said about the presidency, it's a great, great uh, interview. Huntley and Brinkley interviewed him a year after he got the job. And he was like, well, I was in the House. I thought the action was in the Senate. And when I got to the Senate, I thought the action was down the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue. And when I got to this office here, he was being interviewed in the Oval Office. He's like, the action isn't anywhere. It's so diffuse that we have to figure out a way to work together. But this book is really about Mr. Trump trying to, or President Trump trying to assert himself in a way that is outside of that construct, outside of that power diffusion. And so my question is, has he permanently damaged our institutions, our democratic process, our alliances? Is this something that's repairable in your view, Michael? So I, I've thought enormous amount about that because for a while I was convinced that, you know, whatever, whenever this came to an end, the system would snap back into what it was. Um, I'm less convinced of that today, but the real answer of what the Trump era meant and, and what impact it'll have will really be determined by what comes afterwards. Because if what comes after the president resembles more of this presidency, then it is truly a, uh, you know, it's a pivot point in American history, you know, the presidency being used in a different type of way. But if it sort of goes back to what well, to, we define that way, if you don't mind, it's being used in a different type of way. So what way is it being used? I, I would say that the, 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 the most um, sober way of describing it would just be that like, in the post-Watergate era, we started to live by a set of norms about how politics should uh, be uh, divorced from law enforcement and how the office of the presidency uh, should be used sort of um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as the tip of the spear for the entire country. And I think that we've seen the office of the presidency and the levers of power used in a much more um, selfish way for the politician, in this case, the president, than we've seen before. And I think that we have seen um, politics um, become part of law enforcement in a way that we haven't seen before. Let, let me just point something out. The president said today that if his rivals are not prosecuted before the election, it will be a great letdown. You know, it'll be a great, essentially a great failure. Okay, I don't see that as a lead headline anywhere. Okay, the president saying that about a criminal investigation is so pre-Trump era off the charts and unusual that that it, it, we become and and this is the cliche, you know, we become numb to this, whatever. Like the president saying that about a criminal investigation is just still so extraordinary and we and, and and we've like we we haven't moved on from it 
but it's become their vice president last night is saying, well, yeah, we may not accept the electoral outcome of the uh, peaceful transfer of power. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, how do we, how, why why are good men and women in the country accepting that, Michael? Why why isn't there more outrage? I'm going to tie that, that back to the book. The thing that Trump has done is his consistency in terms of feeding his base and in terms of his loyalty to his base has created a tether between him and the base that has allowed, I think, for behavior that the base would not normally tolerate to go on. And at the heart of that, I think, is the judges. I think the fact that Trump has been so consistent on the judges and has remade the federal courts in the way that he has, not just with conservative judges, but conservative judges of a certain mold, of a very conservative mold, of a certain age. And I think that the fact that the president has been so true to that has created that tether, that umbilical cord that has allowed for things like Mike Pence to say last night, you know, not to fully commit to accepting the results of the election, to be at least accepted by, you know, pick your number, 30, 40, whatever percent of the country. So you've got, you've got guys like uh, Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, so many people uh, that were trying to crush Trump in 2016. There were literally withering attacks day in and day out. Those people are now in the boat with Mr. Trump, and those people are the biggest sycophants of Mr. Trump. And I'm just wondering, uh, what do you say about that? How, how has he been so successful in bending people who are that influential and that powerful to his will? What are they, what are they doing exactly? What, what, what's the order in their personality of their priorities that are allowing that to happen? I would actually ask you this question, and I th- and, and uh, my thesis, and I want to see what you think about this. My thesis is is that they still don't understand the base of the party. So if you're Lindsey Graham, you're probably really surprised that Trump got as far as he did in the Republican Party, you know, primary. And then you're even more surprised that he became president, and even more surprised that he endured and survived despite the way that he behaved. So. What I think is that if you're Lindsey Graham, you're not totally sure what the base really wants and is willing to go along with. And the only thing that you can recognize is that they've been willing to go along with this. So you have to dance, you have to grab the baton in the parade and just start marching. Because I don't think that they fully thought the base would do this. And the only thing they know is that the base has gone with him, so they have to go with him. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's many things I abhor in life, but racism is probably at the pinnacle in terms of what I abhor, because it's just complete unfairness and talking about peace and social justice. And so this whole Southern strategy that Stuart Stevens writes about in his book, we, we had him on Salt Talk, uh, and the acceptance of this sort of uh, systemic institutionalized racism in 2020 I find reprehensible, and I would make a statement that if we don't figure that out in the Republican Party, the Republican Party is going to end up on the ash heap of history. If Mr. Trump wins and they continue down this path, it's going to be aging white people that buy catheters and CPAC machines and my pillows from Fox News during the commercial breaks. That's going to be their party, and it'll be a minority party for a generation. And so if they're clinging to that, they're making a very big mistake. My 
odyssey with Mr. Trump was I was an establishment Republican fundraiser working for Jeb Bush. He recruited me. I allowed my ego to impair my judgment. I was excited by the opportunity of working on that campaign. And so I chose to ignore, you could call it moral expediency or whatever you want to call it, the comments about the Mexicans, the comments about the immigrants, the comments about the Muslims. And I, I think I lost a piece of myself doing that, which I've apologized for. And I no longer could take, I could no longer take the moving of the goalposts. When he, when he told the four Congresswomen to go back to the countries that they came from, I told Mayor Giuliani, hey man, they said that to our Italian grandparents. Why are you tolerating these racist nativist tropes? And the answer is everybody wants to be in the bubble, Michael. They wanna be in the state dinner. They want to be in the presidential motorcade. They want to be on Air Force One. And there's a seduction to power that allows these people to conform to his behavior. So I I don't like it at all. And I think what you're saying is interesting, but I would say something differently to you. We need leadership in the country that is more like a thermostat on the wall as opposed to a thermometer. Mr. Trump is a thermometer. There's anger out there let's tap into the anger and all of these acolytes gravitate to that. But we actually need a thermostat. We need somebody to say, okay, hey, we're going to punch in these coordinates. We're going to lower the temperature in the room. I'm going to show you how we're going to do this. And we're going to calm down this middle class and lower middle class anxiety and anger by actually providing them something of substance, which could make their lives better. And so we're not doing that. uh, And a result of which they're catching waves uh, that are coming towards the beach, and they're trying to surf those waves. And I just think they're making a, a huge mistake, and it's a, it's going to really hurt that party. It'll also hurt the country because you're going to have a lopsided country here soon. You don't want one-party rule. One-party rule has destroyed the city of New York. It's impaired the state of California. You need two vigorous parties. But this is about you, not me. You asked me the question. I shouldn't have been that long-winded. Let me go back to the book, because I think this is uh, an interesting thing about this book. Mr. Trump feels like he is one of the characters in Looney Tunes. You know, the anvil is coming for him. It's about to hit him in the head. He escapes the anvil. He's tied to the rail track, and here comes the train. For some reason, he's released from the rails, and he gets out. Uh, How is he able to do that? How is he the Harry Houdini of political corruption and malfeasance? I think that the the thing about Trump is that Trump can't take a punch, but he can take a beating better than anyone else. So like he can't take the day-to-day criticisms and it drives him crazy. But what he does is that he trudges on despite incredible um, embarrassment and sustaining things that, you know, if, if you or I or anyone was running for public office and did, we would have given up on and gone home. Let's say, you know, for example, politician X was running for office and he on the trail said what Trump did about John McCain, about being caught. My guess is that, you know, more times than not, that politician would have come out and said, I cannot believe I said that. Um, I'm incredibly sorry. I'm retreating from public life. I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend the rest of my life repenting uh, for what I said. But, but Trump was emboldened by that. And he just continued on. And I think his ability to continue on undeterred makes is one of his greatest assets. 
the day after John, uh, the day after Robert Mueller testified before Congress, in which he laid out, I mean, not very effectively, but he testified about what was in his report about obstruction and collusion. The next day, Trump picks up the phone and, and combines the greatest hits of obstruction and collusion into one event. And he asked the Ukrainian president to interfere in the election to, you know, to, to help his candidacy by using his law enforcement powers. And um, I just don't think most people that would have endured a two year long investigation like Mueller's in which it looked at the use of law enforcement and obstruction and you know collusion in terms of ties of using a foreign power in an election would then go out the day after that person testified and combine the greatest hits into one thing. When you interviewed your sources and let's your sources be anonymous unless the ones that have been on the record in the book, do they have regrets? Do they feel guilty? Is there any sign of remorse? Or is it just, I'm coming to you, Michael, can, you know, off the record, just to ventilate a little bit? What, what was your feeling about the people that you were interviewing? Let's put that question aside. Let's take on McGann. Let's just take on McGann for a second. Because McGann comes to the trial. Okay, so for those, that's Don McGann, the, white, the former White House general counsel, who was the lead lawyer on the campaign. Go, go ahead. So, Sorry, so my this is Trump's top lawyer. McGahn came to the trough of the Trump presidency and he did three things that were remarkable. He, Trump gave him the power to remake the courts and he remade the courts. At the same time, Trump badgered him, was nasty to him, and McGahn had to become a container of Trump, Trump someone trying to stop Trump. And at the same time, McGahn was a chief witness as a lawyer against his client in an existential threat to the presidency. In the end, McGahn did all these things, but he walked away with two new justices on the Supreme Court that are made in the mold of a Scalia or a Thomas and the, you know, the type of person that he believes in. He believes in the courts more than anything else. And he walked away with no criminal exposure a big legal bill and um, some pretty frightening experiences, but largely intact. Does he regret that? I don't think so, because he walked away with this invaluable thing of remaking the courts and being the person to do that. Did he have to put up with behavior that most people wouldn't have in order to do that? Yes. Does he regret that? My guess is no, because he got the courts out of it. But it's 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 a lot so, of tectonic. so you're saying that the 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 ends justify the means is basically what you're saying. And so I'm now saying that that's where the equivocation that, comes in, right? That would be one of the rationalizations of the people around the president. You know, it's like it's like, well, in the end, the courts were more important than anything else. And I think that it's not a simple question as I regret coming to the Trump presidency and you know I saw a lot of things that were bad and I should have done more. These people got things out of it, you know. They they got um, notoriety, they got um, uh, uh, profiles that they wouldn't have had before. You know, mm -hmm. some people say Dom again wouldn't have been the White House counsel under uh, a more traditional president, you know, you know, 
I don't think five years ago someone said to you, you know, you were going to be the White House communications director for. Oh, I was yelling at I was yelling at Jeb Bush last week on a salt talk. You should have won the goddamn nomination. I would have been anywhere near the White House. When Trump called me after I got fired, I said, relax. I said, you, you made me as famous as Melania and Ivanka. I didn't have to sleep with you or be your daughter. So we're, we're just fine. Let's move on. But McGahn calls Trump Kong or King Kong in this book, at least according to Michael Schmidt. Why did, why did he refer to him as that? Tell us why. Because Trump was needlessly destroyed things and was like sort of uncontainable. And McGahn had a pretty good sense of humor and had to deal with this force of the president and, you know, basically looked at Trump as, you know, this, this larger than life scientific character that would go out and, uh, you know, no matter what you did, would, would trudge on and, and destroy things for, for unnecessary things. I think that the thing that, that if, if these people, um, and, and, you know, you may believe this yourself too. It's like, it never had to be this hard for Trump. Like, like if, if, you know, if Trump, and I write about this in the book, like McGahn thought, like if Trump just behaved like Reagan, became, you know, caught up with the trappings of the presidency and, um, you know, allowed his people to ruthlessly execute his agenda, then he could have been really successful. And the, the thing about the Trump story that sort of undermines not my interest in it, but that sometimes undermines the um, undermines the story is that, you know, once or twice a month, Trump kicks the ball into his own goal and he blames the other team. Like it's it's like it, it's not like, um, you know, two sides here where they're like really plotting or whatever. It's like Trump is just so ad hoc that it um, it, it almost makes it less interesting. You know, you almost would, you know, in terms of the story, it's like he just he just undermines himself at, at every point. And it makes you wonder, is the presidency maybe easier than to, to, than we thought of? Well, I mean, I and I, and I, and I get the point. I, I want to turn it over to John in one second, but I have one last question. I'm spending a lot of time uh, in the pandemic reading about interwar Germany, uh, which is a fascinating period in European history, which leads to the rise of populism and nationalism and ultimately fascism. Uh, Steve Bannon always said this, and you, you address it a little bit. I'm just curious if you'll share it with us here. Uh, when Trump calls the, the media fake news, it's an attack taught to him by Steve Bannon. It's quite reminiscent to interwar Germany. Tell us, in your opinion, why he's doing that. Why is that attack so successful? And what can the media do to sort of restore the trust that I believe it needs to have with the American people, with the preponderance of the American people? So I think that the one of Trump's greatest strengths is not one that is derived of the legal powers of the presidency, but it's derived of what I would call the megaphone of the presidency. And the, it's the ability to say things that people will pay attention to and the willingness to say things. So it's not just the fact that he's the president and he goes out and he gives a speech, it's the fact that he's willing to say, you know, 10, 20, 30 different things a day that most presidents wouldn't say. Because by doing that and just repeatedly hitting that note on the issue like fake news, it has a lasting impact. And I think for the media to say that it doesn't um, is wrong because you can't live in a world where the person with the, the, the loudest megaphone says things like that and it doesn't have some damage. 
So, so, so I think it's been incredibly effective, even if it's, if, if it's something that is like incredibly simplistic, it's something like, you know, you know, we assume in the media that, you know, we're going to get attacked, you know, on some sophisticated thing on, you know, we got the facts wrong or whatever. We didn't just think that someone was going to come by and scream out, you know, you idiots, you know, you're, you're a bunch of fake news. Um, so it sort of tests us in a way that, you know, we're used to fighting things with facts, you know, it's like, well, you know, here are the facts, you know, and it's sort of hard to respond to a bullhorn uh, with, with an answer like that. So um, I think it's been super effective and I don't know what, what the, the remedy is. I don't know what it is. Um, and I think that it is, you know, this is sort of a cop out um, when you don't know what to say, but I think that really we will only be able to measure the damage of it after, after we have some time after whenever Trump uh, is done in office to really look back and see it, it really matters what comes afterwards. And if whatever comes afterwards is similar to Trump and this keeps up, then um, we could be in some for real trouble. Well said. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey, uh, who's got questions from the audience, but I'm going to hold the book up again one more time. Donald Trump versus the United States. And I'm sorry, Phil Rucker, but this is the best book right now. And Carol uh, Leone. Come on, don't leave Carol out of this. Who's that? She's his co-author on the book. All right. Yeah. Okay. I don't know her as well. You know what I mean? We, 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 got, we got Peter Baker coming up with Susan. You know we're going to favor Susan in that interview, John. I'm just giving you the heads up on that. Okay. Uh, but go ahead. We got questions from the outside audience. Go so ahead. Your, your last comments were a great segue to this next question about what comes next. And you know, I'm going to ask you to put your sort of prognostication hat on a little bit, but also refer to some comments that have been made in recent days by some you know, Republican senators. And it seems like almost the quiet part is now being said out loud. You know, Trump, he's basically tweeting out, you know, we're not going to allow minorities to come into the suburbs, you know, uh, housewives of America vote for me and I'll prevent low income housing from coming to the suburbs. He's, he's shown a willingness to do some things and say some things out loud that maybe the Republican Party believed in but never had the courage to fight for so openly. And you now have Senator Mike Lee, who's tweeting out the fact that democracy isn't the objective. He's saying that, yes, while we have some democratic elements of the Republic, Constitutional Republic of the United States, that ultimately our job as elected officials is to fight for prosperity, for peace, uh, and for liberty. And so they're basically setting the stage for justification of a lot of the voter suppression and other heavy handed tactics that they're probably going to use over the next month or so. So do you think that portends for what's going to come in the next five to 10 years? Let's say Biden wins and the polls are right. Do you think it's just going to be four years of you know, very underhanded fighting uh, from Republicans who think they're the guardians of American you know, society and culture? I was really um, uh, surprised by the Mike Lee tweet and really wanted to know more about what was behind it um, because uh, um, I'd never seen anything like that. And I was surprised it didn't even get more attention, but I'd never seen a politician um, sort of a, you know, for, I guess, Mike Lee's a, you know, a Republican senator to, to say something like that. Um, so I don't know what to make of that. I think that um, whatever comes after Trump, uh, you know, the tone of it will really matter. If the next attorney general, let's say, you know, Biden wins and the next attorney general um, is a Democrat who has been out there for the past four years, publicly really 
going after Trump. And it's, you know, then decides to turn the focus of the Justice Department back on the Trump administration. I think you're going to get a sense that, um, you know, in this country, it's like whoever wins the election is just going to go after the other side. And we're going to get uh, caught up in a, you know, sort of a, a continuous loop in that. And that, um, you know, down that path is, um, is a pretty, um, you know, potentially dangerous thing. Um, if, if the public, and what I'm saying is that if the public perceives it to be, um, you know, whoever wins goes after the other side. Um, because I think that um, in any administration that takes over for another, there's always um, some look back at the previous administration. But I don't think that we've ever thought that the um, result of an election was to go back and, uh, you know, sort of prosecute the previous administration. Um, but certainly Trump has made his desires to do that to the previous administration a central part of it, saying it as recently as today. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think that sometimes, um, you know, when one side sees another side do something, they they adjust to keep up with them. And um, whatever that, you know, if there's a tit for tat here, you know, you're down a new and, and, and different path. And, you know, just to add on a little bit to the Mike Lee tweet, Anthony responded to the tweet basically saying, you know, Senator, is this the steroids talking or or do you really believe that democracy is basically not the goal here? I know it's not the end goal, but and he got a lot of vicious replies from all of the conservative think tanks. And it almost made me think that this was a bat signal that's gone out in the Republican Party to say, you know what, guys, we have to embrace this messaging that Trump has has embraced about voter suppression and and all the things that we're going to have to do to maintain power with the party in its current form. Uh, and so that's somewhat troubling and I think portends uh, interesting times ahead over the next few weeks. But um, I want to pivot to the New York Times story about Secretary Clinton's personal email use, which you broke that story. And I find it curious that for, for some reason on Twitter and in social media, it's become fun to dunk on the New York Times for doing things that might potentially work against the interests of progressive Americans that are deemed as the subscribers to the New York Times, I guess. And so you, there's been a lot of, uh, I don't know, accusations is not the right word, but sort of criticisms of the Times for giving oxygen to stories that might potentially benefit Trump or focusing on what might be perceived as small stories in the scope of the grand corruption that exists sometimes in the Trump administration. So how, when you're reporting a story, you stumble upon a story that might be negative on Vice President Biden or Secretary Clinton, how do you weigh the consequences of your reporting when you're writing a story? So I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think that for what we do, it's pretty simple. We're going to follow the facts wherever they, they lead us. And we're here to cover the world around us um, as thoroughly and as authoritatively as possible. And to find out um, what has gone on behind the scenes um, in terms of any, any political party out of, out of any person um, to understand the larger forces in the country and to put them into context and tell that story. Uh, we're not here, uh, you know, we, we operate without fear or favor, as we say in our credo. And um, sometimes that means that you write stories that the president, you know, tweets nasty things about you. Uh, sometimes that means that you write stories that the left gets very upset about. Um, it's part of 
uh, working, you know, in journalism and working at the Times is that you're going to write things and people are not going to like them. And it's part of the job. And, um, you know, if you got into the job to, um, you know, satisfy uh, people, that that's not what we're there to do. We're out there to sort of uh, ruthlessly go after uh, the truth and to try and tell that. And I think that that, uh, at least before, and I think still is, is a is an agreed upon bedrock of the country, one of the core values of the country. And um, I understand that a lot of people don't like a lot of things that I've written for a lot of different reasons. But if I'm getting up in the morning and heading out the door, I guess we don't head out the door anymore, but if I'm getting up in the morning and uh, you know going to work, I think that if I'm trying to figure out how not to make people upset, then that's a bad way of starting the day. And it's, it's my job to go out and just try and find the story. And, uh, you know, we're not going to make friends in that process, but, um, you know, we didn't get in, into it to make friends. So this is sort of a, a personal follow-up question to Anthony's question about uh, President Trump's attacks on the media as the enemy of the people. From a personal standpoint, what has it been like to live through this era where uh, journalists are sometimes targeted, whether it's with digital hate mail or at rallies, you know, getting targeted. What's it been like to report in this highly charged environment on a personal level? I mean, the thing that, that struck me the most is the vitriol that um, has been directed at, at my colleague, Maggie Haberman, um, which has been far more intense than anything that than, than I have or any of us has confronted. Um, and I think has been um, very unfair. And, um, you know, I've always said, you know, Maggie can deal with the level of stuff that she has and the rest of us could deal because the rest of us face far less um, stuff. Um, I don't know what the answer to it is. Um, you know, I think you just have to put your head down and get back to work. And that, that sounds like a cliche and it sounds easier than it is. But um, that is sort of um, it's the only the only choice that we have. So we have a devil's advocate question from one of our participants, and it's that you know, President Trump didn't pretend like he was going to be a continuation of the norms that existed in American government before him. He ran on the fact that uh, you know conventional government wasn't working for the people, and he was there to disrupt it. So why would we expect him to fit into that mold of a traditional politician and conform to the norms that the American people have seen that have failed them? Do you think? You know, the fact that he still has maybe 40% support is a reflection of just continued dissatisfaction with the way our political system is operating and serving you know, people that have been left out from the economic growth we've seen over the last 30 years in the country. Yeah, totally. And I think that he's been very faithful to that base. I mean, if anything, and it may be, and may end up be his political undoing is his unwillingness to tack to the center, but he has played to that base, what that base has wanted to hear and what that base has wanted for him to do uh, fairly consistently. Um, and I think that, that um, he, that's, that's why he has held on to them as strongly as he has. And I think one of the interesting things, the calculations that he's made is he has, he has not moved to the center um, and he has not tacked to the center in ways that probably would have been fairly easy for him um, because he, he seems so fearful uh, of that base and that he wants to continue to feed that base. My guess is that the base would stay with him um, even if he moved a little bit to the center. Um, but he's, he's been unwilling to do that. And I, I just think the real question I think of this election will be is like, how big is that base? How big is that base? And can that base still get him over the line? I mean, the polls seem to show that it's not, but you know, I, I, I don't know. 
Um, but that, I think that's the thing. It's like, he's, he's bet on the base um, and, you know, not move to the center on anything. So I know you're not a pollster or a political forecaster, and I want to end it with your prediction about what happens you know, come November. Is it, do you think the polls are going to hold true? And if Biden does win, how do you expect, based on your reporting in the book and about how Trump deals with these types of situations, how do you expect him to handle a transfer of power? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. And I think that for us to um, expect for, uh, I'm having a Mike Pence moment here. I got a fly on my head. Um, the, uh, I think for, for us to, you, you, you moved a lot more quickly than Mike Pence. I just want to point that out. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, I think, um, for us to, then again, you probably don't have the smell of shit, like from you know, all the bullshit emanating from your head. So the fly probably moved fast. <laughs> the, um, I think that for, um, us to expect, I, 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 I think I, I, without being alarmist and trying to predict the future, which is, uh, are to do. I think that the president has shown um, an unwillingness to go along with norms. So anytime that you're heading into um, a situation that's based um, on norms, which I think we've learned in the Trump story, uh, the country is a lot more based on norms than it is on laws, that if you're heading into a situation that's heavily reliant on norms, and let's just say elections and transfers of power are heavily reliant on norms, um, you have to be open-minded to the fact that he's not gonna follow norms. I just, I'm just saying, based on his behavior as president, he's not wanted to follow norms, and he's been willing to, to do anything um, against those norms, and a situation relying on norms, you know, you guys are the, the math guys, you know, the finance guys, but when you have factors like that, uh, I think your chances of something are higher. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been fascinating following your reporting over the last four years and even prior to that. Uh, but uh, you're now a household name because of uh, how much Trump has put the media in the spotlight. So uh, thanks so much for all the work you've done. Anthony, you have a final word? Yeah, yeah, Michael, the only reason why we did this with you is we don't want to be the subject of one of your books, okay? So John and I were buttering you up with this salt talk, okay? In all, in all, in all seriousness, I gotta, I gotta tell you, this was a fascinating read. I'd recommend it to anybody, even if they don't have an interest in politics. Uh, you quote Shakespeare a few times in here. This is a Shakespearean story unfolding in America in real time. I really enjoyed it, Michael, and thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. All right, be well. Be well. Thanks.